Over the last two decades, Claire Cooper has brought together thousands of people to collaborate on community initiatives, creative approaches to governance, collaborative composition, and critical listening. Here, in line with Jim Denley's profile on Claire published on Disclaimer, Claire talks through memories of sound and listening, the beginnings of playing the harp and guzheng, futuring, and the multitude of organising and improvising that has been present throughout her career. Spanning disciplines, countries, and communities, Claire's work is rooted in the sociability of improvisation and its capacity to encourage compassion and radical acts of trust. This is a podcast from Liquid Architecture. Support Liquid Architecture's podcast and publishing through a Patreon subscription. To support, head to patreon.com slash liquidarchitecture. My name is Claire Cooper. I live and work on Gadigal Country. I have been somebody who has made a lot of uh, art and music and performance uh, over the years, over the last 20 years, and in different circumstances have introduced myself as an artist or a musician or a festival organiser or a community organiser or an activist, and I guess I, um, at different stages, have realised that certain terms or ways of introducing yourself serve particular assumptions you make about people, but I am a combatronic of all of those things and intend to continue to add to that list of things uh, as I get older. When you ask me about my earliest memories of sound and perhaps more listening, I think of my brother's face, one of my uh, my estranged brothers, of whom I only have a couple of memories. And the strongest one is his bright, intense blue eyes staring at me and holding his ear. Um, we're sitting by a campfire and he was holding his ear and saying, listen, clear sound. <laughs> It's really, I think I might have been five or something like that. He was saying clear sound and he repeated it over and over again. And every time he repeated it, I heard a different layer of what was going on around me. So there was the snap and crackle of the campfire. And then there was the call of a magpie. And then there was the chatter of other campers. And I remember every time, again, he sort of said it, with this bizarre intensity that he has, I felt like it was an invitation to listen to another layer. This is me as a 39-year-old remembering the five-year-old feeling quite disturbed by this invitation. But it was really one of the first times that I had stopped and really listened to the interaction of the sounds in my environment and my connection to them. And maybe because I haven't built many other experiences with that brother, that moment has stayed, um, has remained incredibly intense. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny to just think of that before any other musical experiences or, yeah, live performance experiences. But in this moment, that's my, yeah, that's my response. And I'm sure that 
that moment in some way, I, I've taken that into any of the experiences where I've been an, an improviser, possibly even a collaborator. You know, like I, I'm trying, I think more and more um, I'm not finding that there's a real separation between sitting in conversation with people, which is rich improvisation unless people have pre-planned what they're going to say. You know, you're taking risks and you're trusting one another and you're sharing and you're bouncing off one another in such a similar way that you do when you have an instrument in your hands, right? And you you are always listening to the layers and the way that they connect with one another, whether it is, yeah, I guess you're doing this with your ears, whether you're responding with your with your words or your uh-huhs, <laughs> uh-huh, uh, yeah, or with the sounds that you're making. So I, I definitely think that that sensitising to those layers and your connections to them from a very early age is why then when I came to play string instruments and wanted to find other sounds on them other than the classically um, like Western canon sanctioned sounds, that's why, say, what I play on the guzheng sounds more like rain on a tin roof than it does any particular chord because of that sensitizing to those sounds around me and, and loving them. harp came first I was learning to play keyboard by ear really um we had a little one that we shared between my the seven brothers and sisters and I at home that was my first the first instrument and then the harp was donated by a family at the fancy school I went to so that was a, a pretty profound moment um my dad and I went along to to hear a professional harpist whose name I can't even remember to play. I guess I really should look that up if that changed my life so much. But Dad was a huge Marx Brothers fan, loved Harpo, uh, and I was fascinated by the the design of this instrument. I think so I was 15 and then was completely transfixed by the physicality of it. So I was also involved in dance. I'd been going to dance classes since I was four across the road and... Uh, love the physical movement and full body interaction. So you see harpists traditionally covered in huge skirts or not able to see them in, in orchestra pits. Uh, and this is the first time I'd seen a man play with his legs out and his feet moving at, you know, at moving the pedals around the base of it, almost like a cyclist. It was completely physical and amazing. And we struck a bargain that I would pay for half of the lessons and, and um, and mum and dad would as well, and that was yeah the beginning of my relationship with the harp that was at the school, and so I just go at my lunch my lunch times to to play this harp. I didn't have one of my own or before school, but I wasn't really drawn to being a classical harpist. I love the sounds and physicalities, as I said, but I was quite curious about what else it could do. I assumed it had the 
you know, I guess emotional or uh, the breadth of a classic of a of a grand piano. It could get as dark and deep and grumpy, but you're mostly hearing it be this, you know, tingly, uh, tingly, sparkly character in classical music. The cultural baggage of the harp, so this thing that it was trapped in, this typecast role was something that I really wanted to break out of and I think that was one of the reasons I started putting corks and forks and all sorts of things inside the strings to to find out what else it could do and this was with a full a complete ignorance of the history of prepared instruments and the rich international history of improvisation so I was yet to connect with those things and the Gujan came along at a time when I was still frustrated with trying, like just constantly every time I sat at the instrument, I felt like I was fighting with its history. And the Gujang was gifted to me by Phil Slater, who's a jazz trumpet player who had it sitting on his wardrobe and said, here, perhaps if you treat this as like a soundboard with strings, you might not feel so frustrated. And that's exactly what happened. I think it was about three months I spent just you know, going wild and it, like with full naivety and ignorance of 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 the the uh, sanctioned way of doing things on that instrument, just found all of these amazing husky textural worlds on this gujang. And I felt like because I hadn't had the training on it that I could be more wild with it. the most romantic glasses on looking back to 20 years ago when I was 18 <laughs> and <laughs> working with uh, bassist Clayton Thomas, uh, who was also my partner at the time, to to start the Now Now. So it was something quite selfish that we, we wanted a space to improvise and we wanted to invite people into that and learn, uh, meet other people who were interested in the same thing. So was really motivated by us wanting the gigs and to meet people. And then I think, you know, that if it was just motivated by that, it wouldn't have lasted as long as it did. So I ran it for seven years with Clayton before we moved to Berlin, as well as the series If You Like Improvised Music, We Like You. So that it actually started with that series, which happened on Monday nights in an old bank-turned-artist warehouse um, called Space 3. Yeah, it became an attractor for people who were interested in experimental music. It had a real free jazz vibe at that beginning because Clayton was studying in New York with free jazz players and then evolved from that once we learned about impermanent audio, once we learned about uh, what is music, who had these, you know, who already had a following and a, a conversation about critical listening and experimental sound that we had no idea about when we started the Now Now. So, again, we were just punk, like, coming in and saying, we want this, everyone come and, come and join us. And um, I'm not sure, had we known about the legacy of these other amazing organisations, whether we would have felt so confident going in there. It was, it was yeah. Yeah, the confidence of ignorance probably. 
but improvisation was the main, yeah, what do we call it? Spon- yeah, Festival of Spontaneous Music. But, it, yeah, definitely moved from being like expressive, free jazz, acoustic, rock out kind of melting pot to then bringing in instrument builders or, you know, people like Stessa Duo and Joyce Hinterding and Minute and these people who were doing working with far more uh, sophisticated, minutiae and fast, sparser sound worlds that had a different intensity. So once we started going to what is music and learning about all of these other other forms of experimental music, it just it just grew and expanded and mutated. Uh, and I guess now, yeah, that's 20 years ago. I guess without COVID, it may still be running under different um, different hands. It became a thing that other people really took authorship of, I think, and that's possibly because it just kept it kept changing and shifting. Like red flags went up for me when I saw on social media people saying, oh, that last Now Now festival didn't sound like the Now Now. And I was thinking, oh, something's wrong here if Now Now has a sound. Like maybe it's, it's pigeonholed itself, which is a warning sign. But this is, a, this is an interesting problem, right? If, you're, if your intention is to sort of open up a space for experimentation and freshness, that's fine in your first year. Like you're almost guaranteed to do that in first year. Second, third, 13th, 14th, 15th, you, you, you can't avoid forming a kind of, a, you've got, you're, you're developing a history, an archive and a legacy and that has to be actively acknowledged. And whether that comes in the form of people writing to the organisers saying, hey, you've never given me a gig, you should give me a gig. Or if it comes in the form of, like I said, that, that audience member who said that festival didn't sound like the Now Now Festival, festivals from before, and that's a problem. You, you, you set up this legacy that, um, that then traps, um, it's almost like that freshness can't be, is it anywhere near as possible as it was when, when the thing began? Parallel to the Now Now and If You Like Improvised Music, We Like You series, we had started the Splinter Orchestra, which was another way of, it was sort of another attractor to bring people in who were, you know, improv curious and perhaps without any experience who wanted to just give it a go. And the membership of that was always changing and uh, in, in Sydney where we lived and rehearsed out of our lounge room. And then at the festivals it would expand as well. But it was it was also just this beautiful way. It was another way the community connected and was able to pass questions on to one another musically. 
between rehearsals and gigs. And so when we decided to try living in Berlin, which was, to be honest, in part because we were getting uh, worn out, I guess, like we had our day jobs here and we're trying to run the now now in our spare time. And people started hassling us about the way we were doing the festival or not giving them gigs and things like that. We're just like, we just want to play. Maybe we should move somewhere where we're where players, not organisers. And so there was that. That was part of the drive. It wasn't because, like, there's so many incredible musicians here and amazing things happening, but we wanted to try living somewhere again where we were playing most of the time. And Berlin presented that opportunity. So, like, you could choose any one of any kind of experimental music or film night happening any night of the week, as per the cliché. <laughs> but I started to get a bit of an itch for organising again when I was over there and was involved in a series that was run out of Ausland, which is a converted bunker, again, Berlin and its successful cliches, uh, called Beagle Series. And then when we came to look at the series funding, which was a Berlin state funding thing, um, for the next year, uh, we're sort of saying, look, there's, there's nights happening everywhere where there's trios or quartets or solos happening, but there's not really any um, backing for a large-scale improvising orchestra. And I really missed Splinter in Sydney and proposed that we might be able to start something similar in Berlin that had the support um, that this series had, so just to redirect it. And that's when Splitter was born, but... It had a completely different character because it had 25, this sounds funny saying out loud, but professional improvising musicians, people who made their living from improvising mostly in Europe, who were able to be paid for rehearsals, paid to travel to, you know, to get together to work on things and and pay well for gigs. So it, was, it wasn't a fluid, um, if you're curious and improvise, curious about improvised music come and try it out it was very much like a professional band that experimented with some of the same musical questions or or social structures we were trying out with splinter in sydney but in a very different way because it wasn't the only time in the month that people were thinking about improvised music it was you know one gig of 20 in a month that some of these people were doing so it had a totally different yeah, different character. But that band is still that band's still going in Berlin as well. Some people have come and gone over the when did we start that? Two thousand and I think it was two thousand and nine. So I was there two thousand seven to thirteen. And the band kept yeah, has kept kept on keeping on with a couple of different members, but it always sits at around around twenty five. I'm yet to realise I really want to do like a splinter splitter songbook. <laughs> <laughs> where where we can sort of share the share the different scores and questions that we've developed over the years because they're such different creatures but um, there's a lot of common ground in trying to subvert some of the maybe the inertia the lazy laziness um, the things that are easy to make happen with a large group so yeah Splinter Orchestra still meets every Sunday here in Sydney in this in the in Tempe Jets old um, sports club. You know whether two of them can come or twenty, they meet every Sunday and and record and share and document the process. And so that's yeah, that's a twenty year old band here that is continuing. It's just, it's like a, it's just a really really long uh, conversation. I'd, I'd love somehow for those conversations to be in conversation with one another. 
I see all of the organizing that I've done as being connected and I see it as having a relationship to the art world. Um, when you say arts practice, um, sure. Like I don't feel like I take off a designer hat and put on an artist hat or take off a performer hat and put on a curator hat or something like, like they were, they all absolutely feel connected and more and more. I feel like I'm able to show up into a, a context and, and bring all of those things and draw from the tools that I've learned from my, my mentors and my community in any of those contexts in a way that doesn't, um, doesn't feel like it has, has hard and fast boundaries. So that might say a lot about the people who I'm drawn to work with as well, I think. And I feel pretty grateful. Like I, I teach, I'm a design lecturer, but I think I've found myself in a design school because design is happily, happily fluid. Like at the moment it's able to be a catch-all for lots of different practices. So you can be, be engaged in community organising and activism and sound and machine learning and and what else? Like just the, I guess, the art of conversation. That sounds super wanky, but I'm going to say it. It seems to embrace all of those things under the umbrella of design in a way that I don't feel like art necessarily has or can. So at the moment, that's where I feel like I'm I'm, I'm able to be at home in all of those things where in in the art world, I'm going to say art sector because it's <laughs> that seems to be where I feel least comfortable. Like that said, the art sector seems to be wanting to categorise people and say, no, you do that there and you do that there. But the art, art world, art family, art community seems to be more accepting. With something like um, Front Yard Projects, so that's a, a space that I initiated with some colleagues and friends, um, activists who are wanting to push back on the cuts of 2015, I think it was the 2015 federal budget to emerging experimental arts funding. It was a bit meta, right? Like we were starting a, an organisation that had a space that was trying to invite people in to think about these things but also to engage in activism and advocacy to make sure that those funds were still there or at least to make visible how necessary they were for the for the life force of art, people who make art in Australia. So in that way, you, you know, you're negotiating with council, you're kind of curating, saying yes or no to things, um, you're cleaning toilets, you're hosting dinners, you're, you know, putting on exhibitions and... For me, over that time, that's where I've learned perhaps to be happily blurry across all of those terms. It's it's very definitely not an art space, but it's where a lot of artists have felt comfortable to come in and, uh, yeah, think through those things together. I actually found it a bit um, 
like there's a kind of projection going on between something like front yard as a as a as an idea and also how how I feel in that um saying that something is ill-defined or like deliberately undefined can be seen as incredibly wanky but I think that it's it's often in resisting the codes or the markers or the categories and boundaries where some of the richest and most interesting stuff tends to happen. This is drawing from another pot here. I used to do design for a permaculture school uh, called Milkwood. One of the things I learned in their, in their training, I think it was principle 11, uh, to use edges and value the marginal. And I think in something like where you're looking at a landscape or looking at cultivating soils or or plants, that's where some of the most interesting cross-pollination or unplanned creative activity happens. So you get to, you've got the things that you think you want to grow, think the things you want to nurture and what you've learned about how best to do that. But sitting these things side by side, they might actually decide to do something together without your your intention there and having leaving some space for that mystery or that um, those accidents you could call it improvisation or some kind of radical trust but I I want I want more of that in my life Um, I think something like front yard and being someone that gets onto a stage and says sure in front of a few hundred people I am happy to do an unplanned (laughs) <laughs> to create something with you, even though I have no idea what's going to happen. That's something I feel so grateful to have had in my life um, and to have been, you know, supported, whether it's by listeners or by organisers. Um, there's, there's not a lot of spaces for that in life, I don't, I don't think, or we're not told that they're valuable. I find futuring to be an incredibly magical practice um, that a lot of people are doing without even knowing that it is futuring. So anytime you're sitting with people to uh, share stories that imagine being together otherwise, that imagine alternative ways of connecting or creating or um, bringing about change, that's futuring. So futuring as a formal practice has been used in business for many years. Like Shell Oil did an incredible futuring visual visualizations of futures, possible scenarios in the 70s. So it's been around for a while and has had a, a profit-driven um, application as well. But the futuring that I'm engaged in and I'm interested in is always sort of social justice-centered and places the power in the stories that are told and doesn't force any kind of consensus in a beneficial, in, sorry, a shared positive future, but encourages 
friction encourages granularity, so where we can tell stories about a day in the life of a community in 10 years' time that helps us to flesh out what we might be, how we might bring about some more change today. So in a way, it's being more more present and constructively critical of the present. I would see most artists as engaging in futuring, whether they're working with sound or words or cement, they're almost always proposing something. But for those listening who want to know what it is in in physical practice, it, in a futuring workshop, you're really getting together to tell these stories, you document them, and then often at the end you're finding ways to what we call backcast, uh, what to do next. So based on these stories we've told one another, how might we get there? And you might come up with a strategy, you might come up with a, a plan of action that you didn't think of before when you were only focusing on the funk that you're currently in. I find it very hard to imagine a future where somebody like anything like Scott Morrison is the leader of this democracy. (laughs) Like imagining even his smug face and trying to imagine a better future is is, is like a visual block for me to having any hope, right? So let's put that aside, (laughs) you know, and then invite people to think about what what heartfelt, compassionate, um, powerful, visionary leadership might look like um, as opposed to how we bring down the systems as led by people like that today. With students, um, so design students who are learning futuring, they might prototype a speculative object from this future that then becomes like a prop to tell the stories. Uh, So that's that's more in the focusing on the the thinking through making. Um, But say, for example, in a few weeks I'm leading a workshop uh, that's exploring the futures of uh, family, domestic and sexual violence in Australia where it's it's a Zoom a conversation where leaders in that in that field are presenting their visions of of better futures in that in that uh, field, uh, and then the workshop itself would be breakout rooms where people are choosing particular questions to explore, and then to write what <laughs> a few lines that end up in a communique that then becomes an advocacy tool for Doctors Without Borders, Illawarra Women's Health Centre. Uh, Royal College for Australian and New Zealand psychiatrists to take from that futuring workshop and advocate for change, advocate for victim-centred trauma recovery solutions for um, for people to know more about the health impacts of violence. So that particular workshop has a predetermined output, but say if we're futuring the arts in this country or diversity in the arts in this country, that might the, the ideas that might come up in the workshop, yeah, could take any any form. Yeah, it's not always predetermined by the organisers what will come out at the other end, but for this quite high-stakes policy-driven futuring workshop, it's already been determined. Futuring is definitely a form of improvisation and absolutely is only effective when there is a kind of deep listening in critical listening, I think it doesn't work if you arrive into a featuring 
experience with a predetermined answer in the same way that I think often music doesn't have the same energy if you've already decided what you're going to do before you get on stage. I remember being in Japan with Sachiko M and hearing her describe her music as being, you know, she said people might like my music now but they don't understand it. It it will only be understood in the very distant future. (laughs) I thought this was a really... She's hilarious. So I just thought this was a, a really interesting statement of, um, I guess, a really futuring statement about sound receptivity, sound consciousness, and maybe even taste. I'm very conscious of this this piece that Liquid Architecture so um, generously offered to do focusing on what I've been involved with over the last 20 years, but I've felt felt and perhaps still feel awkward about being at the centre of it if most of the work that I've done has been trying to pull people together or, or try and collaborate. So that, that sense of trying to put the collaborations at the front or the the need to collaborate or work together collectively. It's far easier to celebrate or point the finger at or shine a light on a particular person's practice. And I just don't know. I guess I'm I'm thinking a lot about how we how we change the metrics so that our go-to is looking at the communities that people are engaged with and inevitably tied like well inextricably linked to before we necessarily talk about individual achievements but it's like as soon as you're asked to write a bio or a cv you are uh, you feel like you're sort of stuck in this set of metrics that says here's who I am who I studied with where I did gigs I can't speak for a collective necessarily which is another limitation but I just yeah, I'm I'm always wondering how how would it be possible what kind of a future will we be in where the go-to is the communities that people are connected to not their individual works.
This recording was produced by Mara Schrettweger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. Support Liquid Architecture's podcast and publishing through a Patreon subscription. To support, head to patreon.com slash liquidarchitecture.